Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to an instrumental version of He Stopped Loving Her Today, a George Jones classic that won CMA Song of the Year for its writers Bobby Braddock and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Curly Putman. Pulled from deep in our archives, and yes, there's a story about that, the conversation with the since-deceased songwriting legend highlights the remarkable career of the two-time Grammy nominee and Nashville Songwriters Hall of Famer, who is responsible for classics such as Green Green Grass of Home, My Elusive Dreams, D-I-V-O-R-C-E, and many others. Part one. Well, Scott, our listeners don't know this, but this episode is already looming large in songcraft history. Yes. We haven't even aired it yet, and it's been a big, pretty consistent part of our story, I would say, for the last few years. It has been a, a, a secret part of our story <laughs> that no one has known but but you and I. Uh, and is it, is it time to let the world in? I think, yes. I think it's time for us to come clean. Right. Um, there was a, an event that has led to some seething bitterness and resentment. <laughs> we uh, have a dark secret. On my part, that... Uh, that is now been released. So in case people are wondering what in the world we are talking about back in September of 2015, I was in Nashville. Uh, you were not there at the time. Right. And I did an interview with Curly Putman, legendary songwriter, Curly Putman. Yeah. Uh, a few days later, we met up in Branson, Missouri. Like you do. Like, like people do. And uh, we went there with our friend Jared. The three of us had a great time in Branson. And you and I, in Branson, interviewed Mel Tillis. Yep. Now, being the responsible guys that we are, we were in the hotel room in Branson, and you said, hey, we've got the Mel Tillis interview and the Curly Putman interview on your computer. We should back it up so that's not the only place right. that we have these two interviews. Right. So, so then you could tell people what happened from there. Uh, yeah, uh, I think I can tell you what happened. I mean, we pulled out a few flash drives. Yeah. Started backing things up, put some flash drives in some pockets, <laughs> went to the airport, and uh, came back to L.A. I mean, that's the, about the extent of what I know happened. And then uh, I think both of us said, hey, you have that flash drive, right? <laughs> I thought you had it. No, I thought you had it. And somehow, Curly also disappeared from the source computer, which... Yeah. How that happened, I don't know. Well, I, I think what probably happened, because the Mel Tillis interview remained on the source computer, which is how we were able to, you know, we, we've aired that interview yeah. before. Um, I think what happened is is we thought we were doing a copy-paste job, but what happened was a cut-and-paste <laughs> job. So that then the only version yeah. of the Curly interview it was now gone from my computer, and it was on some thumb drive, perhaps owned by me, perhaps owned by you. But 
because we've done a lot of interviews on this show, it was the kind of thing where, you know, we knew we weren't going to air it right away. Right. And by the time we started looking for it, uh, we couldn't find, couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. We lost it. We didn't know if it was Paul's thumb drive. We didn't know if it was my thumb drive. We had no idea. So I have looked through every thumb drive in in my house and anytime I come across a new one, I get this little ray of hope. Yep. Like, oh, maybe this is going to be the Curly interview. Now, we should point out that Curly passed away in October of 2016. Right. So this was not a situation once this all came to light where we could go, oh, I hate to do it to him, but Let's go back I'll see if we again. can go back yeah. and, and do it again. We'll apologize for, you know, losing it. But so it, that was particularly heart-wrenching because it was a great conversation and now Curly's gone and well, now and we don't have to my knowledge. This is actually the final interview that he did. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's historically significant. To lose that was was more than just, you know, bumming ourselves out. Right. Yeah. So it was kind of devastating. Um, and I always assumed that, uh, you must've been the guy that screwed up and, uh, <laughs> cut and pasted instead of copy and pasted. So I have had this sort of dull river of resentment towards you for the last four years of, of our songcraft. I wondered adventure. what that was. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I was always making snippy comments yeah. and rolling my eyes at you. So now, you know, well, but just a few <laughs> days ago while going through my garage, doing a big clean-out, big restructure, reorganization. I saw this little flash drive, and I thought, ah, I'm not going to look on it. I've looked on, I've looked on all of them. But something inside me said, just try it. Just plug this thing in. And I popped it in, and I started looking through all this stuff, and it, all of a sudden there's something that just says curly. And I'm like, wait a second. Mm. Unless this is my secret trove of Three Stooges videos, <laughs> I think this might be the Curly Putnam interview. Popped it open, immediately backed it up before I even looked at anything. And then I texted Scott and I said, I think we found Curly. And I felt the wall of resentment begin to crumble. I, I, in I that didn't, moment. I didn't burst into tears, but I, inside, I burst into tears. <laughs> uh, I was so happy to, because yeah. I, I had, I'd kind of given up hope. For two or three years, I thought, you know, one day this thing's going to show up and we're looking for something else. Yeah. And, and, and I'm just going to believe that that's going to happen. And I had sort of gone through the five stages of grief and finally reached acceptance that the Curly interview was gone forever. And then there it was. I mean, it, it like, I can't tell you how happy I was that you found it. And this may be a, like even a better situation than had we just immediately aired it. Because would you ever have had that feeling of jubilant euphoria? Probably not. See? Yeah, you're I welcome. Mean, I walked out of the interview feeling a, a sense of euphoria, then uh, crushing devastation when it went missing. But then I got to recapture the euphoria all again. So yeah, I should be thanking you yeah, for well. taking me through that emotional uh, roller coaster. That's that was great. Well, now all of our listeners can hear it and thank me as well. <laughs> and you know what I think is particularly cool? And maybe this was, uh, you know, maybe this is Curly himself looking down and giving us a little thumbs up, but. Uh, yesterday was the launch of Ken Burns' much-anticipated 16-hour documentary called Country Music. Yep. And so I feel like right now everybody's excited about classic country music. And Curly Putnam is like the songwriter of country music's golden era. Yeah. I mean... He stopped loving her today. In my opinion, that, that was 1980. And that was like the capstone of an entire era of all of country music up to that point. That was like the yeah. pinnacle. That song moment. alone would make a writer a legend. Yeah. 
And as a matter of fact, that song is one of only three songs in history that was named CMA Song of the Year two years in a row. Wow. So, I mean, you know, that's like a crazy achievement. Um, another one was Always on My Mind. Mark We've had James. Mark James yep. on the show. Um, the only other one was Easy Loving by Freddie Hart, who has passed away. So we will not be having Freddie Hart on the show. Yeah. Uh, but we can say we've, you know, had a pretty solid representation of the the elite writers who have pulled off this Absolutely. Uh, this feat. Um but anyway, I think it's cool that the Ken Burns thing is coming out. I've seen all 16 hours of it already. Um, I think it's very well done. You know, I'm a huge classic country music fan, so my inclination is to want to uh, pick these things apart and like yeah. criticize what they could have done better. And I got to say, I have some some minor quibbles with it, Yeah. but like far less than I thought I would. I think I, it's well, very well done. I've heard that it just flies by. It only feels like 15, 14 hours when you're watching it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, 13 maybe even. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's great. So um, what Ken Burns did for jazz and baseball and the Civil War before, I hope that he will also spark uh, a renewed interest in uh, country music, which is an art form. It is a yeah. it is a uniquely American art form um, and something that I hope people kind of uh, get excited about again. Well, and we're about to unveil now a conversation with one of its great artists, Curly Putnam. Absolutely. Part two. The late Claude Curly Putman Jr. enjoyed a streak of more than 30 years of consistent country chart success. Many of his songs have become iconic country recordings, including Green Green Grass of Home by Porter Wagner, Dumb Blonde by Dolly Parton, My Elusive Dreams by Tammy Wynette and David Houston, D-I-V-O-R-C-E by Tammy Wynette, Blood Red and Going Down by Tanya Tucker, and He Stopped Loving Her Today by George Jones, which won CMA Song of the Year for two years in a row. Transcending country music's classic era, Curly continued to enjoy top 10 hits with a new generation of artists that included I Meant Every Word He Said by Ricky Van Shelton and Made for Loving You by Doug Stone. Curly became one of the few songwriters to have a song written in tribute to him when Paul McCartney composed Junior's Farm following a six-week stay at Putman's Ranch when Wings was recording in Nashville. Curly, a two-time Grammy nominee, was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Alabama Music Hall of Fame. 23 of his songs have earned BMI Performance Awards, and his music has been recorded by Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Wanda Jackson, Waylon Jennings, Merle Haggard, Marty Robbins, Charlie Pride, Johnny Paycheck, Ray Price, Conway Twitty, Loretta Lynn, Joe Tex, Esther Phillips, Tom Jones, Dean Martin, Keith Whitley, George Strait, Randy Travis, Alan Jackson, Trisha Yearwood, Blake Shelton, Graham Parsons, The Grateful Dead, and literally hundreds of others. Curly, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you very much. That sounds uh, a lot better than I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, you grew up in rural Alabama in a family of timber and sawmill workers. Um, what role did music play in your family when you were a kid? Well, when I was a kid, we, we lived on Putman Mountain, which was named after our, my forefathers uh, in Jackson County, uh, between uh, Huntsville, Alabama, and Scottsboro, Alabama, and uh, uh, so everybody, we always had a, a guitar in the family. Most all of my brothers and sisters and uh, family have played a little of some kind, some sort. Uh, so I grew up loving and listening to the Grand Ole Opry, man, and yeah. and that was probably. Uh, one of the best things that we we had for entertainment, right. you might say, out in the mountains like that. So yeah, yeah. 
Now, who were some of the artists that you were hearing as a kid on the Grand Ole Opry that captured your attention? Well, I think the first people that I really, really uh, remember hearing was, of course, would be uh, uh, Eddie Arnold, uh, uh, then we, uh, Roy Cuff, and later on, uh, it was people like um, uh, Ray Price, and uh, which was, to me, one of the better uh, uh, country music artists that I and singers that I. Uh, really, really enjoyed their their singing, and of yeah. course, there was a lot, a lot of the older stars, and they were everything from uh, uh, the fruit jar drinkers to <laughs> to whatever on the Grand Ole Opry, yeah. you know, back in those days. So. Well, you know, you hear a lot about um, people who become musicians or songwriters when they're kids. Maybe they learn how to to play the guitar or maybe the piano. But I understand that when you were a kid, you actually started out playing the uh, steel guitar, which is kind of a difficult instrument. I'm I'm interested what what drew you to that. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, that still is one of my favorite instruments. And the uh, first uh, time I remember getting getting interested in, in, in the steel guitar was uh, uh, stars like Ernest Tubb and um, the big stars back then played high schools and and things like that, which they don't do now, of course. <laughs> right. But uh, Ernest Tubb had a steel guitar player on his show, uh, and uh, I went to the there at our auditorium at, at, at Princeton, Alabama. From then on, I was hooked. I mean, yeah. I, I talked my dad into to getting me one, and we ordered it out of Sears and Roebuck catalog, right. a little silver tone signal. And I just, I don't know, I, I just loved the sound of an electric steel guitar. Yeah, so. yeah. But I played in bands then, and then I was in the Navy for four years, and I played with bands you know, there's just entertainment on the ship where yeah. the crowd was at. Well, you know, especially in, in, in those days, um, for a lot of young men, joining the service was an opportunity to experience, you know, new places and meet new people from all over the country and, and maybe even get exposed to, to some new music. And you mentioned joining the Navy, and I'm curious, uh, what influence did those Navy years have on your musical development? I, I played music on the ship I was on, and uh, I, we went to Japan, and a lot of the Japanese people uh, would be playing uh, country music, and, and two, it was, um, uh, and they didn't even speak English, you know, huh. and they were, but they would uh, undoubtedly uh, learn the songs. Uh, memorize it you know right. and so they they knew country music and loved it and so um the, I, I got to to play some uh music there with, with with some of the japanese people that uh that would play in a club of some kind and of course when you're in the navy you're out looking for clubs anyhow <laughs> but then and, and anything that uh, had music that that you love, and so it had a lot to do because I was on. Uh, I think I was eighteen, maybe, uh, when I went in the navy. And of course, you could, uh, you couldn't even go and and drink in a bar. You can drink a beer or anything. So yeah. Anyhow, I learned a lot about uh, uh, 
country music by by listening and and just loving it yeah. wherever I was at. So it had a lot to do with me knowing these other parts of the world other than Putman Mountain or something, <laughs> something like that. You right, know, so. right. Now, you know, a lot of people know you as a songwriter, and, and some folks might not realize that you actually recorded a, a couple of great albums for ABC back in the late 1960s. Um, and I'm curious, back before you started making music professionally, you know, right when you were getting out of the Navy, mm-hmm. um, was your original goal to become a singer, to become an artist, or did you have your sights set on making your mark as a songwriter from the beginning? No, I think it was mainly to, to play just like a, a steel guitar, say, for instance, uh, with a good band or, or whatever. And, of course, in the back of your mind uh, is... is uh, the Grand Ole Opry and, and people that you know and you hear a lot. So uh, it, the songwriting came later. Uh, I, I, I was always kind of interested in, in the songs, of course, but uh, then I started writing a little bit here. You know how you'd write a little poem of some kind. Yeah. And so as I, I got into it, I found out from other people, which would may lie to you, I don't know if telling you <laughs> they were good, you know what I mean. <laughs> and so, um, but but I got uh, uh, sending my songs to, to people, and uh, so I moved to Nashville, but I moved as a shoe salesman. Yeah, yeah. So I worked for Tom McCann Shoes, and, uh, uh, as I said, and then as assistant, manager they sent from Nashville where I wanted to be they sent me to Memphis as an assistant <laughs> manager so I stayed in Memphis for a while and I made a complete circle around through Huntsville Alabama and uh, I was working uh, at a shoe store but we would play music uh, at different uh, local uh, places uh, auditorium schools high schools or yeah. whatever on the back of trucks and <laughs> everything else, because I was, uh, I still wanted to, uh, I had that music in my mind, and of course, the DJs down there, uh, which was uh, Slim Lay and then Happy Wilson, Mary and Worth's husband, we we kind of got together and uh, and uh, I, I just got interested and we'd play shows and to keep. Uh, the wolf away, I guess, <laughs> and uh, so there's a lot you have to do to, to um, if you you got to be able or, or willing to stick with it long enough to, uh, to to that's where a lot of people don't they start out and think it's going to be easy, right? But there's nothing easy about it. You made a record for the the Cherokee label out of Huntsville called the Prison Song, and uh, that. Went to number 23 on the Billboard country chart in 1960. I miss my mama and my papa and my sweetheart. Won't wait, I know. As somebody who'd been kind of working toward this goal, talk about the experience of having that first record out that's got your name on it and kind of having something to, to show your friends and family that hey this music thing you know might might work out after all well i think most uh, everybody that's in the music business or a songwriter or 
uh, artists, uh, that first record, I mean, they'd do it for nothing uh, without pay or anything <laughs> right. else, just to have it out on a record, you know. I mean, is, uh, of course, money, everybody has to have money because I had a family and uh, had, um, so I had to figure out some way to to balance that out where you could uh, pay your bills and it was something that uh, I, I felt like I was uh, taking a big chance, but I said, I'll either find out now if I can uh, hack it or not, you know right, what I'm saying? Right. Uh, yeah, that one of those positive steps along the route to where you're you're trying to get right and, and in in 1960 marion worth who you mentioned who was uh, based in huntsville she signed a deal with columbia records and recorded your song i think i know which mm-hmm. um became her first single and your first top 10 mm-hmm. as a songwriter i believe deep down you will hurt me while with I pray no, darling, will you stay or will you leave? Don't say it, don't tell me, I think I know. That was before you actually moved to Nashville, but that was one of those steps along the route. Um, in the following year, Connie Hall hit the top 20 with your song Sleep Baby Sleep. And I want to ask you about that because that's credited to you and, and Bill Anderson and, and Buddy Killen. And for those who maybe don't know, Bill was a, a writer with Tree Music Publishing in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, and Buddy Killen was the head of Tree Music Publishing. Right. And of course, people know Roger Miller, who was, was a writer there. Um, and that's probably the biggest publishing company in Nashville today, part of Sony ATV uh, right. Tree. Um, but back then, it was kind of this upstart publishing company that was having success. Um, and you eventually moved to Nashville and went to work for, for Buddy Killen and Tree. So tell us about how you got involved with Tree and, and what you were doing there in the early days. Well, having that um, first hit with the Marion Worth I'm sure it helped me, and uh, and still it was something that I felt like was kind of luck. And uh, and uh, but she was a good singer. She was uh, new on on, uh, Columbia, and uh, uh, I just happened to write this slow ballad song that that would that would fit her. Yeah. Her husband, Hap Wilson, and. uh, and I mentioned Slim Label a while ago. They were, they owned the Cherokee label, so yeah. that, that that's that's the reason they put me out as uh, uh, as a singer then. Right. <laughs> so I had a couple of uh, tunes on that on that label, and uh, and uh, Roger Miller heard heard that, and he asked me. He said, "When you come to Nashville, come see Buddy." And he said, "I'm finally getting my." Uh, uh, foot in the door. That's right. uh, basically what he said. And that kind of gave me a little confidence that sure. I could maybe write something. So, but I think I met Buddy at a, a DJ convention. They called him back then, and uh, he'd he'd kept in contact with me because we just kind of hit it off as right. as by meeting him. And so he was uh, one of the better song. 
men in the business. I thought he knew a, a hit song when he heard it, and so he asked me to maybe to, he had two two guys uh, that were kind of pop uh, writers that were plugging songs. He didn't ever, other than himself, he didn't have song pluggers. Yeah. And they were going into like they were in the reserves or something, and he said, well, "How would you like to come up and and uh, uh, pitch songs and uh, what I call plug them or pitch them to artists?" And yeah, and uh, so I said, uh, "Man, just to get close to to Nashville was an honor for <laughs> me." And I think they paid me maybe. Um, Seventy-five or hundred dollars a week. Wow! And if I got one recorded, then it was a little extra a little bonus. bonus. So, <laughs> so when I got up there, uh, people started coming around because I was more country. Yeah. Uh, and I listened to everything that came through the uh, mail, and yeah. anybody came and brought a song in, no matter how good or bad it was, I I would listen, and so. I think that helped me be a better songwriter because yeah. I heard what these people wouldn't record. Huh. Yeah. You know, you could, and uh, so you hear a lot of junk, uh, <laughs> right. but you have a lot of potential, also. So. Well, and also I, I would imagine that pitching songs to artists or to producers or, or what have you, you you have the opportunity to see how people react, and you get that sense of you you get that instinct of what works. That's right. It, that. You uh, understand what they want, yeah. Except as much as what they will, you know. Yeah. So, um, and and but I have plugged other people, several other people's songs. I plugged Dolly Parton. Then people like Justin Tubb was there. Uh, of course, Roger and uh, uh, Don Wayne, the guy that wrote Country Bumpkin. He's right. Was a, a down home country boy like me and. <laughs> I would try to get with people to plug them songs, and of course they didn't know who I was. Yeah, and so I would go to the Grand Ole Opera on Saturday nights backstage, and and somebody, if you got to know them well, they'd say, "Well, I'm going to be recorded in the next few uh, weeks or so, and so yeah. give me some songs." So, well, you obviously were paying attention and getting a, a good education because not too long after you moved to Nashville, you wrote the classic Green Green Grass of Home, which was recorded by uh, Johnny Darrell before it got covered by Porter Wagner, who made it a top five country hit on the Billboard chart. Yes, they've all come to meet me Arms are reached, smiling sweetly It's so good to touch the green green grass of home And from there it it just snowballed. Uh, of course, Tom Jones had a major pop hit with it. He learned it off a Jerry Lee Lewis record, and literally hundreds of people have, have recorded that song. Um, when a song like that becomes so familiar and so iconic to the public, it's hard to imagine that someone actually wrote it, that at one point <laughs> it was just a guy in a room with a guitar making up a song, you know, because it just it's one of those things that feels like it's always... Uh, existed, um, and I'd love to hear what your inspiration was behind that songs and your memories of being that guy with the guitar, just working on it and and making it up. Well, that's right. I, I, it started just with a thought back in my mind uh, from me seeing a movie, but I was, it wasn't anything to do basically with the movie except 
a country boy in the, in the movie Asphalt Jungle is the name of the movie. And, uh-huh. and Sterling Hayden was the star in it. And he was a country boy in New York or some big city. Right. And uh, he got mixed up with uh, some crooks, bank robbers. and But he wanted they wanted him to, to work with them so to get enough money to go home. Uh, which I I never said what state, but down south. Uh, yeah. He, to get enough money, he decided to go with them, and um, and uh, they robbed the bank, of course. And the, yeah. then the law was after him. So, but he did, uh, and the, he wound up at his old home place, uh, and the law was right behind him, and <laughs> and uh, so he he was at the the house part where the old house. Uh, is still standing. Those um, it was bringing a lot of um, uh, memories to to people, uh, older people, younger people, people that want to want to go home and know that home is where they won't be accusing you. Of, uh, so he was the kind of crook that you liked, right? And so they, but he got to where he see, could see the old house and. And uh, they they killed him there, and he died there. Right. So that was the basic thought. Um, and then I got uh, to writing the song. Like you say, I was alone on a, on a Sunday afternoon, and I went up to tree, uh, nobody around, and I just I'd had that particular thought, and it just kind of fell out. I don't know, an hour or two, uh, kind of lost all track of time <laughs> because uh, it. I wrote it all in that length of time, but I come up with the thought of having that all being a dream, and uh, and uh, the guy was in prison, and he had been dreaming all this good stuff. About yeah. There, there to meet him was his mama and papa and his sweetheart. And yeah. So that took in a lot of um, a lot of uh, nostalgia for people that you know home to them and their mother. And, yeah. Well, there was, uh, and uh, of course. You, you got to get a little romance in there somehow, and, <laughs> right. and uh, so uh, it, it, it kind of just fell out, and I could see it happening just yeah. almost like you'd see a movie. And, when uh, you finished writing it, did you think, "All right, well, there's a, another song," or did you think, "Okay, this one, this one is special. This is this is something different." Well, I thought it was special uh, because it was it was kind of sad, a sad song, of course. I'm good at being sad, <laughs> so it was kind of a sad song, and uh, I don't know. I put it. I almost come to tears. I think I've, I've said that, not to, not to try to be dr- dramatic myself, but uh, in writing, I could feel it, man. I could see that happening, and yeah, and so um, I think it paid off. But, yeah, and I had a little surprise. The surprise ending. Was helped make that song, I think, because right. everybody thought he was really doing that until he woke up and looked around him, and he was in a prison. Yeah, yeah, wait, waiting to be with an old sad padre. Yeah, tell me about doing the demo of that song and and how Buddy kind of reacted to it and and how it wound up getting cut and everything. Well, I, the next day, of course, I I sang it for uh, for Buddy. A buddy told me, he said, I like the song, but it's kind of dated sounding. He said, it's uh, uh, just not what's happening out there, you know. Yeah. And, and so, but you know how 
stubborn a songwriter could be, <laughs> I decided to keep on at it until we did a demo. Like, and Dottie West was having a, a demo on her new songs. And so she was a little late for the session, and the, we had the music musicians already there. And, just, and uh, so uh, while they were just sitting around not doing anything, right. and I, uh, I thought that would be a good time to to see if I couldn't get it put down with the <laughs> right. band. So I asked, I asked Buddy, I said, how about me putting down this green grass at home thing here and and he said that he looked around and all these musicians you right. not doing anything and you <laughs> had to pay them pretty good so yeah he said all right go ahead and so we uh, kind of run through it maybe one time and uh, just a simple uh, uh arrangement yeah and uh so i did it and uh it didn't have you know back in those days you didn't overdub and <laughs> It was all done in one one take, just about, I guess. Yeah. And so uh, after that, I pitched it around several people, different companies, different artists. Uh, pitched it to Bill Grammar. I pitched it to, uh, well, I, I can't remember all the people. Uh, Chet Atkins. I pitched it to him for Bobby Bear because it had a talking part in it. Right. Chet and was producing Bobby then? He was producing Bobby Bear. And so, yeah. and that's who I really wanted to do it, but he recorded and didn't do it. Yeah. So, um, anyhow, uh, Kelso Hurston was on a session where I did the demo, and he was a producer for, I think, United Artists, I'm not sure. And, uh, Johnny Darrell, the guy, first guy that recorded it, was a manager of Holiday Inn, West End, <laughs> in Nashville. And yeah. so uh, he went to Bobby and, and asked Bobby, could he have that song, too? And, uh, and, of course, Bobby just got through cutting and didn't cut it. So yeah. he said, well, all right, go ahead and take it. So yeah. so Johnny did it, and he, like I say, his first efforts ever and uh, so after he put it out, it started really getting people's attention because yeah. of the little surprise right. ending and all that kind of stuff. So that's how it started. Yeah. And from then on, it was just um, uh, Porter Wagner covered Johnny Darrell. Uh, everybody that cut an album back in those days would cut a hit yeah. and to put on their album. Right. They don't do that as much nowadays, right. of course. And uh, so Jerry Lee Lewis did it and tom jones who's a big fan of jerry lee's heard it and just started doing it on his shows and people loved it they thought it was an old folk song <laughs> right most people didn't realize that it was a new yeah they, they kind of thought it was like an, an old a traditional folk song had been written right <laughs> that was dated you know right made people feel that way so yeah well in 1967, Dolly Parton had her first charting hit with your song, Dumb Blonde, which you wrote solo. Don't 
Dolly, of course, is a fantastic songwriter in her own right, but she's always been open to recording outside material if it if it fits her. Um, and I'm wondering, did you write that song specifically with Dolly in mind, or what was the what was the genesis of that song? No, because um, at that time I was plugging the pigeon songs for Tree and Dolly and her Dolly uh, partner, her uncle Bill Owens, were writers. They had signed up with Tree as writers, and I couldn't get their songs, her songs even, yeah, r- recorded. <laughs> and uh, but I wrote this uh, dumb blonde, and I cut kind of tongue and cheek type. Uh, thing like and uh, uh, somehow or other Dolly was recording for uh, uh, Fred Foster uh, Monument Records and so right. they heard it and did it with Dolly and it it, it became a uh, I don't know what, how high it got and but it was her first uh, maybe it got top 10 I don't know but anyhow after that she she started like me probably she probably learned more about what yeah. it takes to, you know, to, to have a hit. Or yeah, to, yeah. Well, I want to talk about My Elusive Dreams, which was your first number one country hit when David Houston and Tammy Wynette recorded it in 
and and Billy here on you a hit song when he heard it. Yeah. So was there uh, being a, a song plugger? Uh, was there some strategy there of hey, I think this song would be good for Tammy. Tammy doesn't like it, but if I get with her <laughs> producer. <laughs> I don't know if I had enough sense to think that or not. Then, but <laughs> but um, no, I don't think so. I, uh, I just knew Billy. He loved a good zone. I mean, yeah. he uh, and he, I, I knew from um, from other sources that he liked my songwriting. He yeah. liked my ideas and the thing. And so I, it was. Everybody uh, loved the song as much as anything I've written because it had a, a good melody and a good story. Yeah, yeah. And Roger Miller told me one time, he said, and he was, to me, one of my favorite writers. Yeah, sure. Uh, for a lot of things, not the, not the uh, Joas type, but the, yeah. the serious songs, Husbands yep. and Wives and, and things like that. He said, that, that's one of the greatest love songs that I've heard. He said, mm, yeah. and it was if a, if a woman followed a man, yeah, uh, no matter what, whether he could work or find work, or yeah, had yeah. A, uh, even had a, a, and they left Alaska, but the only two of us because they had a baby, yeah, and it didn't go with them. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. So it had the sadness, the sad, yeah, you know, in there. So yeah, yeah. That's what people used to say. I'll say this much: people, these songwriters used to say, "Well, if you want, if you want, uh, get, uh, kill them off in a song. Go, 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 right with go Curly. Right with Curly. <laughs> he, he knows how to do that. Right. But, but that is one of the hardest things to do is to uh, kill somebody. I ever said about death, right. unless you handle it right. Uh, it's yeah. just, uh, uh, you know, even he stopped loving her today. It was. I'd like to talk about your relationship with Bobby Braddock. Uh, you wrote several hit songs with him. Uh, you Can't Have Your Kate and Edith Too by the Statler Brothers, which is getting away in the, from the sad songs into the funny. But uh, then you guys also wrote D-I-V-O-R-C-E uh, by, by Tammy Wynette. Tell me how you and Bobby first began collaborating, and and what was special about the two of you as a songwriting team. Well, at that at the time, Bobby uh, had been writing and working on the road, uh, playing piano with Marty Robbins. Right. Uh, I remember the first day he came to Tree, and uh, he he was trying out and playing for Buddy, uh, you know, some songs, and. Uh, so I was there from the beginning when he when he moved over the tree and so, but he had a, a, a thing about writing a little little novelty uh, flavored songs yeah. and uh, 
but they were different, but uh, they, some of them were hard to get recorded. People <laughs> love to hear them. Yeah. And uh, when you'd go plug, plug his songs, uh, he... He uh, people love to hear the the way he uh, put things together, you know. Right. And uh, so um, I got we got uh, together then on several songs. Uh, I me myself, I, I like I say I wrote more serious, sad type songs. Right. And, uh, uh, and he liked to write the, the kind of funny. Right. Uh, it's almost a genius there. Yeah. Uh in in coming up with something unusual and different. Right. And so that's the reason he did it with D I V O R C E. It was it was such a uh, obvious thing that you do that. It's people do that in front of their kids and right. spell it out. Yeah. Where they won't know what you're talking about, you know. <laughs> yeah. I would uh tell him what what I would run into when I would pitch his songs. So um, uh, I, one time I talked him into going with me to plug a song. He had a song he thought Lynn Anderson could do. Right. And uh, and I said, well, Bobby, why don't you come go with me? We'll play this for, for yeah. him. Well, we played it, and, it, and Bobby was sitting there, and, and Glenn sat and said, you know, that'd be good for Wilma Lee and Stoney Cooper, he said. And, of course, they were good country right. singers, you know, but yeah. they, and it was nowhere close to a, to a Lynn Anderson right. type song. Sure, so, not but, having the big hits like Lynn Anderson. Yeah, and, but, but that showed Bobby that um, that there is more to plugging songs than just saying, man, I think that'd be good for yeah. so-and-so. So. Yeah, you have to cast it. But, but he is a talented songwriter, and... Uh, uh, I'd have to say that uh, D I V O R C E was more Bobby than me, and uh, but w well, he he talked about we interviewed him for for the show, and and he said uh, that he's only really ever had uh, two song pluggers in his life uh, that he's trusted, and he said one was Terry Wakefield, who is his current one, and the other was Curly Putman, and he said right? <laughs> he. He really trusted your song instincts, and he talked about having that song and just it not working, and you, he really credited you with being the guy who turned the melody to, to make it work. Well, that's, that's what we thought, and I, I, I hope I, I did enough to, to earn part of it because uh, when he did his demo, it was a little bit jaunty and a little bit, uh, it wasn't, Sad like a divorce would be. Right. But two Didn't people. capture that emotion. So I, I, I always tried to get as much uh, hurt out of them as I could. <laughs> and so uh, right. I put it down then as uh, uh, just me. And well, he might have been on the play the piano with me on. I can't remember. Yeah. But, um, and, uh, but I put more. Uh, Tenderness, <laughs> I feel I can use that word in it, uh, that would make it like it really would be if a man and a woman were getting divorced and their little yeah. boy was there and he thinks, we, you know, he thinks it's Christmas and we're whispering about right. a present for him. Or right, right. So it had a lot of depth yeah. in it by slowing it down, getting it into a, uh, a 
softer sound yeah, in the movie, yeah. you know. So. Yeah, Bobby said it sounded like a soap commercial when he wrote it, but you fixed it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he. <laughs> Uh, he's always said that and has nice of him. But, <laughs> right. but Bobby and I, uh, he, he is a talented man in, in writing, and but he is unusual in some writings. And uh, so um, that, that was the beginning. That's the reason I, I, I did my best to get us down to, to earth. Yeah. Well, you had several hit songs in the late 1960s, such as uh, Just For You by Ferlin Husky, uh, Ballad of Two Brothers by Autry Emin, which was another one that, that Bobby was on. Um, but I actually want to ask you a, about a song that was not a big hit, um, and that's Set Me Free, which is a song that you recorded on your first ABC album in 1967. And mm-hmm. it's one of those songs, uh, Charlie Rich has covered it, Ray Price has covered it, and it crossed over into the R&B world, and Esther Phillips did it. Joe Tex recorded my favorite version of that song. And I saw a voice set me free. And then she said to him, she said, If you think you've had enough, man, if you think I lied, But you seem to write in a way that is um, deceptively simple and direct, but emotionally complex, kind of like you're talking about a moment ago, being able to tap into the, to, to make it sad, to, to make it feel uh, lonesome. And um, I can't help but think that um, that experience of, of being a song plugger, working with other writers, uh, pitching songs to to whether it be artists or A and R people or, or whatever it was, um, had to have given you an opportunity to come in contact with with a lot of songs. Um, and I'm curious to know in, in what ways you were able to kind of keep your antenna up to know, okay, this has emotional resonance. This is gonna work. This is gonna tug on people's heartstrings. Versus well, this might be contrived or, or not, you know, or heavy-handed. Well, you learn, yeah, you, uh, learn that from the producers and the artists themselves. But then people got off on these things, and uh, we, we don't do the you know, cheating, drinking. Well, if you do away with that, uh, and especially in, um, well, that's not necessarily all country, but uh, that does away with a lot of your country. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, um, but uh, and and uh, killing somebody or something like that would, right. would have to be done in a, like you say, in a, in a um, uh, general sort of way right. without it really meaning or influencing somebody to to go out and do that, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> so you got to do it with a lot of finesse or touch yeah. if you can, and, and yeah. that's hard to do. So. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that, that country music, you know, if you look at movies or television or any other genre of music, they've pushed the boundaries on what they're willing to talk about or what they're willing to show, what they're willing to discuss. And Country music's the only form of media I can think of that's, pulled back the other way that they're less willing to address sort of the hard 
uh, aspects of life. Well, that's true, because that's like a that has been the uh, the starter of good country music or good or wrecks on the highway or <laughs> right. Well, I'm always fascinated by what songs a a writer comes up with alone versus what songs are are the product of a collaboration uh, with other people, and you've done it very successfully both ways you know you've had the the hits with with people like bobby braddock and you've you've written several big hits by yourself one of which uh was blood red and going down which was a number one for tanya tucker in 1973 I mean, you can see that title on the page without even hearing the song yet and go, ooh, I want to hear that. What, what's that about? And I, I wonder, typically, was that the starting point for you? Do, do you begin with a title? Well, uh, usually a punchline of some kind, uh, R.E. A storyline of some kind, and uh, uh, you never know exactly where these come from. But right. but uh, it's always been one of my favorite kind of songs, story type songs. Yeah. But um, anyhow, I didn't think all that much about that song when I wrote it, and and Bobby Braddock, speaking of him, he he was one of the first guys that says, "Man, that's a good song," mm. and. Uh, Nobody else uh, around, uh, you know. Uh, I didn't even even know myself. I just, uh, but after we after I wrote it for a guy to sing it, so I took it to my friend Billy Sherrill. Yeah, and uh, I forget now who he was recording, but he said, "I think, man, I'd be good to do it with uh, Tanya." Uh, Tan- she yeah. was just. She'd only had two records out, I think, and yeah. that was Delta Dawn and maybe one other. And this, I don't know, somewhere along in there. That, right. But I hadn't thought about it that way. It's the same. Uh, so he he was thinking deeper and farther than I was, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's best about a song that both. Uh, Female and male can do it or do right. it together. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that way you cover all, all bases. You More know. options. Well, I understand that you had the opportunity to host a fellow songwriter and former Beatle in your home back in uh, 1974. Um, tell us how you ended up having Paul McCartney uh, stay out at your farm. <laughs> <laughs> I think he needed to write a hit song called Junior's Farm. No. <laughs> um, he wanted a place kind of out. Uh, out away from everything, and they wanted horses to ride. They wanted, <laughs> I guess, to kind of get get away from it all, but yet work on their uh, uh, tour with Wings, which he uh, that they were doing. Right. They were rehearsing because, and uh, I didn't, I, I didn't intend to do that. I went out with Buddy Killen to look for some place where that. Uh, uh, where they could stay and and um, 
uh, the kids were young, his uh, like Stella, which is now over some <laughs> clover the or makeup yeah, or something. Big fashion. Uh, yeah, well, she was only just a small girl. I don't know. She yeah. must have been five years old or something well. like that, you know, <laughs> if you stop and think. But yeah. uh, anyhow, he said, why don't you... Um, let them have your place. I said, buddy, they, I, I hear they just tear it all to pieces, you know. And <laughs> right. Of course, that's what you heard back then. That's what rock stars about did. Rock, rock bands and right. everything. They'd tear up hotel rooms. And <laughs> right. So anyhow, I said, we'll get a good contract, you know, that if they anything happens, they'll take care of it and all that. So, um, and uh, I said, well, what, what do you think I'm going to do? We're going to do it. <laughs> right. my wife, Bernice, and, and Troy, my youngest uh, boy then, uh, he said, well, why, don't you, why don't you take a trip or go over to uh, Hawaii or somewhere? And sure enough, that's what we did. We, <laughs> uh, we got a contract with them that they would fix anything that was broken, torn up. Or, right. And uh, they paid so much of uh, They'd pay us so much a week. Right. We had an extra house uh, on the uh, property, on the, the road yeah. uh, from where we lived. So he let the van stay down there, and then they moved in the, the big house, right. I say. <laughs> and um, we didn't want to, but yet after we decided to do it, I said, well... First of all, this will help us pay for this farm, uh, <laughs> right. which they were going to pay a pretty good uh, rent. You know? Yeah. And so, um, so that's why how that happened. And they, they stayed, I think, six weeks all together. We went to to uh, Hawaii. Me and my wife and and Troy, my uh, uh, youngest son. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> we we went over there and had a nice. Uh, vacation right uh, that's kind of the way it happened and he while he was there they recorded uh they recorded uh, an album and one was junior's farm which they i didn't say it they they said that it was done because of my my name is claude putman jr so anyhow it worked out good and uh, and they didn't trash it. No, <laughs> they did break a, a table top like something like that. Right, glass uh, table glass. Top. Yeah, and they replaced it, and <laughs> and uh, there were only a few little marks on the wall, like where a kid would write with a right. crayon or something like that. Right. And so uh, everything was taken care of, and it right. was no no big big uh, problem. I heard later on that he had bought a piece of property down. Uh, down here from from a guy that wasn't supposed to ever say anything about it, but I don't know why. <laughs> right. He did, and it was out in the country there. Yeah. So, but it's possible. Yeah. Maybe he'll come back one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have written more hits with Sonny Throckmorton than any other co-writer. Uh, in the late 1970s alone, you guys had uh, Easy Look by Charlie Rich, Thank God She's Mine by Freddie Hart, When Can We Do This Again by T.G. Shepard, and It's a Cheatin' Situation, which was recorded by Mo Bandy as a, a duet with Janie Fricky, and that became the Academy of Country Music's Song of the Year in 1979. It's a cheatin' situation A stealin' invitation 
take what's not really ours to make it through the midnight hour. It's a cheating situation, just a cheap imitation. Uh, Sonny used to live uh, within a country block of uh, where I did out, out up here and out here on, um, uh, it's called Frank Franklin Road. It's out about two or three miles out uh, here from Lebanon. Yeah. So he lives close close by me he had bought a place and uh, sometime we'd ride in together to tree right to the publishing company and when, when we would be riding in or riding back uh, at, you know at the end of the day or whatever we'd we'd write some and uh, and we'd get together uh, in my office at tree and write and what Sonny was uh, one of the more talented uh, uh, songwriters and was down to earth with his his writing. He, right. Uh, so we had a little uh, thing going where we we had a, a T.G. Shepard uh, hit or two, Smooth Sailing and um, When Can We Do This Again? And right. So after that we, you know, we, we uh, did more. In fact, we got more songs. I got more songs that we wrote back then, and yeah. that's not been even cut. But huh. and uh, so uh, we just uh, enjoyed writing together. And so uh, uh, I guess that's how it happened, basically, <laughs> because yeah. we, we rode in together and we spent some time together. Yeah, yeah. Um, in that same same era, you and uh, Michael Casa wrote a song called "It Don't Feel Like Sending to Me," mm-hmm. which became a, a number two hit for the Kindles. No, always surprised by the content of some of their songs being a, a father-daughter act some of the stuff that... <laughs> well, I don't think I thought about that but, <laughs> but uh, if you stop and think about it that of course that was well follow-up song sometimes uh, is taken from the song that they had with such a big hit which was uh, uh, Heaven is Just a Sin Away so right. we we incorporated the uh, uh, the sin, sinning parts right. and don't feel like sinning. Yeah. And, uh, but you could say things back then that they don't say in songs nowadays. I right. Mean, you'd come out pretty plain with, with, uh, what sinning is. You right. Know, what, so, but that was strange because of them being a father and daughter <laughs> act, you right. know, but they were, they were good and yeah. commercial sounding and anyhow, uh, country music or any music goes through, a a period of, of time, uh, which sometimes it, it fits and sometimes it don't. Uh, right. I don't know. You just you you write for whatever's selling. I think. Right. Well, speaking of writing, what's selling uh, in the late 
1970s, T.G. Shepard really latched on to, to your songs. You mentioned a moment ago, uh, We Can Do This, uh, When Can We Do This Again, which you wrote with, with Sonny. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also the number one hit, I'll Be Coming Back For More, which you wrote with Sterling Whipple. Mm-hmm. There was the top ten, Smooth Sailing, another one that you uh, and Sonny wrote. And then a, a couple more number one records, Do You Want to Go to Heaven and War is Hell on the Home Front too. Mm-hmm. Uh T.G. Shepard was selling some records in those days, and he's not a, a name that you hear as often now, but back in the 70s and 80s, he had something like 15 number one singles, and uh, I'm curious how he kind of latched on to, to Curly Putman songs, how that began, and, and how you were able to find so much success with, with his records. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I think uh, we kind of latched on to the, the stuff that he was hitting with, but because of that, Buddy Killen was producing it. Yeah. <laughs> got the first opportunity. If if we wanted something that fit T.G., we'd go to Buddy because he was producing all those hits. Yeah. And so uh, that, that helped us as songwriters, uh, you know, come up with things that... Um, and we were writing commercial stuff, but it was easier because of Buddy being a good... And T.G. having hit records. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, But after he left Buddy, the, uh, his hit slowed slowed up. So yeah. there's a, a a combination there that uh, is is important for a guy to have a hit after hit. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you had way too many hits for us to mention all of them. But during the <laughs> late 1970s and early 80s period, there were a a couple of John Conley top tens with Baby or something and What I Had With You. Um, there was Mac Davis's top ten recording of Let's Keep It That Way and and so many others, but I wish we had time to talk about every single one of them. But the the giant from that period, of course, and from any period really in the history of country music is George Jones's recording of He Stopped Loving Her Today, which you, you wrote with Bobby Braddock. He stopped loving her today. It placed a reef upon his door And soon they'll carry him away He stopped loving her today That was the Academy of Country Music and NSAI Song of the Year. It was the CMA Song of the Year twice, two years in a row, which is amazing. Um, There's been an entire book written about that one song it's it's referred to as the the greatest country song of all time um setting aside the fact that you that you wrote it (laughs) putting on your objective song pluggers hat for a moment what do you think it is about that song that has resonated with the the public so strongly all these years i think it's the love story behind that that a guy would love a woman um and, and we said it in the first line of the song. He said, I'll love you till I die. Mm-hmm. And built to that, uh, and and that um, then, then we stopped for a while and uh, about writing it. I don't know what Bobby, he probably remembers more than I do, but anyhow, we, we got back together later on and we tried to figure out how to finish it up with her coming back to him or yeah. whatever. So we finally 
we played it around. Everybody just, I mean, it was one of those things that's hard to get cut because it's... It's heavy. <laughs> it's, it's, and George uh, himself said uh, said that oh, nobody wants to hear that or that morbid type song or something like <laughs> right. that. So uh, and any song that comes out and says it like that is yeah. hard to get cut. But if you get one that, uh, that touches a lot of, of people, and I always think that's one of the biggest things to sell records is to touch people with the things that mean the most to them. Yeah. Of course, that's home, love, uh, dying, weddings, uh, baby births or whatever. Yeah. I mean, things that that mean a lot to people. I mean, you hit them with uh, a good singer. And like George, of course, is one of the better country singers. Yeah. Uh, then, then you have stand more chance of getting getting, yeah. getting a hit or getting, yeah, yeah. getting played. Uh, the depth of it is to me what how deep can you get down into this particular saying or yeah. is it just darling i love you you know right, what i mean right uh, or june and moon uh, <laughs> so, so that's uh the old timey way but right. if you um uh, uh, yeah but that's the main thing i think is the depth and right. the feeling of a song that yeah. touches everybody just about um well, as you moved into the late 80s and early 1990s, you continued to, to have hits. Um, there was I Wish That I Could Hurt That Way Again, which went to number three on the Billboard chart for T. Graham Brown. Um, there was I Meant Every Word He Said, which was number two for Ricky Van Shelton. Because whatever he told you meant I'd never hold you. And I meant every word he said. His heart stole those words from my head Now it's too late to tell you what he's already said Again, these are songs that just kind of cut to the heart. They have emotional resonance, and to my ear... These are songs that are just as great as the stuff that you were coming up with in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if for you, after being a professional songwriter for three decades, you know, at that point, uh, was it challenging for you to keep coming up with, with new things to say and new ways to say it? Well, I'll, I'll have to say that one of these things, well, of course, that's always important. But a lot of these are, were co-written things. Some, some, uh, some were brought to me by just a title, or or they, or they couldn't quite get it started right. Or, yeah. Uh, and of course, I was supposed to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but to me, like he, on I meant every word he said. That has some little crooks and turns in it. And but he was here's a guy. How do you set it up where he's over here in this wedding going on? Yeah, with somebody else. And she, I should have said that, yeah. but I meant every word he's saying. Yeah, it's, so it's a little quirky in yeah. there, but that's that's what it really means. So yeah, um, I think you have to to get that clear. You can't just say it and yeah. I've heard people kind of talk about you know, writers who've been around for a long time, who've had success, you know, their, 
their appeal for getting together with younger writers is to get those kind of new ideas. And once they get those, that new phrase or new idea, they know what to do with it because they're a, a craftsperson, they're a professional. Mm-hmm. And then you have younger people who might have some interesting kind of outside the box ideas, but don't know how to articulate or to get a, across in the right way because they don't have that kind of experience. And, and, and so that's why it's so important for younger writers and older writers to collaborate with each other. Well, that's true. Um, uh, most of you younger writers nowadays, I mean, a lot of people are writing with younger writers. Yeah. Uh, I know Bill Anderson's been writing, because you've, you've interviewed Bill, and he's one of the better lyric uh, men around in, yeah. uh, in, uh, in songwriting. And, uh, but get, getting to, to a spot that hits the... The general public now is it's a little bit different than when um, he's always had great great titles, uh, you know, walk out backwards, or you just <laughs> so they'll think you're walking in, right. different, <laughs> different things like that, and pole folks, and but anyhow, um, I think that uh, by saying it, uh, it makes it clear it, you don't have to guess what. Uh, what he's saying, you don't yeah. have to try to mull over to to follow the story. I yeah. mean, that's what the way I feel. And yeah, yeah, that's the reason I say simplicity is the best route. I think. <laughs> right, but sometimes it can be too simple, <laughs> and they take that to be the broader. <laughs> <laughs> well, if two hundred years from now, the world only remembers Curly Putman for one song, <laughs> what song would you want it to be? I think it'd be Green Grass of Home, yeah. Green Green Grass, because that hits so many people in so many countries. Every basic, every language, uh, major language in the world. Yeah. And uh, you wouldn't think it. I mean, when it's it's just uh, uh, like an old gospel song almost, or yeah. a, a traditional folk song or something. But um, your last charting hit was Made for Loving You, a song that you wrote with Sonny Throckmorton that went to number six on Billboard for Doug Stone back in 1993. And it's not a heartbreak song. It's a, a tender love song that's been played at, at more than a few weddings. Um, and I think it's interesting, after all the divorce and death and cheating songs and everything <laughs> that you've had so much success with that to talk about this song, um, Made for Loving You, because you and your wife, Bernice, have been married for almost 60 years, if I if I understand right. I told her to quit telling people that. <laughs> <laughs> they think I robbed the cradle. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she's she's been with you through this whole adventure, and, and marriages can, can be difficult when you're talking about creative type people or people who pursue the the entertainment business and a lot of a lot of those marriages don't make it um so just a, on a personal note how were you guys able to to beat the odds and and maintain a successful marriage while you were also maintaining this very successful music career well that's a good question too uh, it, 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 your your wife or your mate whomever has has to understand what what you have to do to, to be a songwriter? I mean, sometimes at quitting time, uh, like everybody else, sort of nine to five job, uh, at quitting time you 
you pack up and go home, you right. know. But sometimes you could be halfway into a hit song, and um, uh, and you need to while you're on to it, you need to. So I think uh, wives have to understand that uh, that about a songwriter. Yeah. I don't mean that they. Uh, Every night's out there cheating on them or something. They right. have to work late or, <laughs> right. or whatever. So I don't know. It's it's hard to say. Uh, um, we both come from kind of humble beginnings down there, and you know, and uh, I think uh, that that stands for a lot of people that are brought up in the same uh, fashion, right. and uh, so they understand that, and. And never thought that we'd ever be able to to uh, uh, have what we have, like uh, the farm where Paul McCartney came. That was <laughs> right. a beautiful yeah. place out yeah. there, and uh, it, it, it I had about a mile of white fence around it and a big house up on the hill. And right. but it gets to be a lot for people to to keep looking good <laughs> if you go, you know, and and. We and we were bad about not letting things grow up and and look crummy looking. So <laughs> it it takes a lot to, and both of us felt the same way. So and uh, but that's all I can say. And, and of course she's a good cook. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't hurt either. <laughs> oh man! But anyhow, so that's that's really I think it's just understanding and giving and taking a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's an honor for us to be able to have this conversation and and to be able to share this with the folks that listen to our show, and I really appreciate your time. Well, I thank you. I've uh, enjoyed talking, and I can't lie to you. Now you can Google me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.